Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 22nd, 2015. Alright, this is going to be kind of a special request episode of Fighting for the Faith. I'll give you details here in a minute. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to put God's Word back into context We approach Scripture using sound biblical hermeneutics, proper exegesis, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture. Yes, it's about Jesus, not about you. It's about what he's doing for you and what he's done for you. And uh, proper distinction of law and gospel, as explained, by the way, in the book of uh, Galatians as well as the book of Romans, uh, in order to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, And those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex is those who we need to be listening to, whose books, you know, we need to be buying, uh, whose, you know, materials we need to be studying instead of God's word. Yeah, that's the right word, instead of God's word in our small group Bible studies to see if, well, if they're teaching the Bible correctly, teaching historic Christian doctrine, a biblical Christian doctrine, or if they're twisting God's word taking our eyes off of Christ and teaching for shameful gain, the things that they ought not to be teaching. Now, like I said at the very beginning of the program, today's episode is, well, it's it's a special request. I received a request from some students at Liberty University to, well, review a recent appearance by Brian Houston at Liberty University. He spoke at one of their convocations And, uh, well, um, he was there kind of shilling for his book, Live, Love, Lead. And Brian Houston proceeded to give a teaching regarding the story of Joseph that I just considered to be bizarre. And the reason I say that is because he made it about the students at Liberty University rather than about Jesus. Now, yesterday on uh, Fighting for the Faith, if you haven't already listened to it, it'd be a good idea to actually go back and listen to yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Um, I uh, rambled my way through the book of Ruth, 
And uh, I thought that was a very important thing to do. And I said that we would probably build off of that today, and we are going to build off of it. And we're going to kind of repeat something that we repeated yesterday, and that is, is that Jesus Christ himself has made it clear that the Scriptures are about him. That is not something I've made up. That is something that Jesus himself explicitly teaches. And he teaches this in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, where he says to the Jews, you diligently uh, search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. By the way, this is verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 30, uh, 39. You think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me so that you might have life. So Jesus, his understanding of the Old Testament, it's about him. Same thing on the road to Emmaus, the day of the resurrection. Jesus has risen from the grave, and uh, two of his disciples are on the road to Emmaus, discussing what has happened in in, uh, verse 17 of chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes up alongside of them, and their eyes are held so they can't recognize him. Something miraculous is going on there. And he says, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so he said to them, what things? Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up and condemned him and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, they they clearly didn't know their Bible. And uh, and so they go on to tell Jesus that some of the women had, you know, claimed that they had heard that, you know, they went to the tomb and the tomb was empty and the angels said, that he had risen from the grave. And it says this, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, that would be the Torah. That would be Genesis, beginning with Genesis. And then all the prophets and, and all of the Tanakh, all of the Old Testament, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus makes it clear. The Bible is about him. It's not about you. And when you make it about you, you miss the whole point. So here's what we're going to do for today's kind of special request episode of Fighting for the Faith is I'm going to take the time in the first hour, and I'm not sure if it, if we'll finish it in the first hour, if we're going to have to bleed over a little bit longer. We're going to go into the book of Genesis, and I'm going to do an extended teaching. We're going to read. I'm going to read to you the story of Joseph. And in the Bible, Joseph typologically, I mean, he is one of these guys who the most, I mean, just clearly, with I mean, with in just absolutely stunning ways, is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. That's what Joseph is. And although we're reading history, where this is not mythology, Jesus writes in the lives of the patriarch things concerning Jesus that point us to Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time looking at the typology that points to Jesus uh, in the story of Joseph. And then 
when we are finished with that, you know, so we'll have to take a break down at the bottom of the hour, we'll take a break at the end of uh, at the end of our teaching. And then after the second break, we're going to head over to Liberty University and we're going to listen to Brian Houston attempt to teach on the story of Joseph. And I think the comparison will be so sharp and so stark that you will begin to see, if you haven't already seen it, that what these guys are doing, men like Brian Houston, men like Stephen Furtick, men like Perry Noble, men like Rick Warren, a whole plethora of so-called vision-casting leaders within the seeker-driven megachurch movement, you know, they aren't preaching Christ. They're preaching themselves, and by doing so, they're missing the whole point. That's the idea. So that will round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You are going to need a Bible. No joke, you're going to need a Bible. And we're going to begin with Genesis chapter 37. This is going to be a long teaching, and understand this. Uh, Most of this is going to be me reading out these biblical texts. I will show you the typological highlights along the way. There, I, within this hour, there's no way I can plumb the depths of all of the typology going on in the story of Joseph, but I think you'll get the gist of it because wh- what we're doing is, is we're reading the scriptures the way Jesus tells us to read the scriptures, to look for him. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus said. So in, on, in some very real way, the story of Joseph is, uh, is a straight line from Joseph all the way to Jesus. And like I said, you know, typologically, Joseph is one of the strongest type of end shadows in all of the Old Testament. So let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 37, and I'll start at verse 1, and we will just start reading. Here we go. Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. I'm going to pause right there and note the fact that uh, Joseph is 17 years old at the beginning of all of this. That's actually kind of an important thing to keep in mind. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, I'm going to make a note here. Joseph was not out daydreaming, and then he, you know, and he thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I you know, if I could become, you know, a, a ruler or something like that. No, this is a prophetic dream. This dream has its origin in God, and it's a form of prophecy. It's a predictive dream regarding the future. This is not a dream that represents the heart and desires of Joseph, and that's an important thing we have to keep in mind. So Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. By the way, in conveying this dream, this is this is a prophetic dream. So this is he's conveying the word of the Lord, and they hated it, could not stand it, right? So then he dreamed another dream. He told it to his brothers, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, if you know your New Testament, now, literally, these dreams sound like dreams regarding... Well, it's not only ruling and reigning, but the idea of bowing down. I mean, there's something going on here that seems messianic, pointing to deity, if you would. But now, Joseph isn't a god. He is, well, he's a sinner, just like you and I. Now, this saying that you that we just read regarding the fact that his father you know, kept the saying in mind, his father kept the saying in mind, this sounds a lot like, what Mary did. Let me read to you a couple of passages from the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And um, here's what it says. Luke chapter 2, I'll start at verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is, with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen that had been told to them. Yeah, I don't think it is an accident. I do not think it is an accident that we read in the Hebrew text in uh, Genesis 37 regarding Jacob and the dreams that his son was having, that he kept these things. He kept these sayings in mind, in his heart. And Mary did the same thing uh, regarding Jesus after he was lost. Remember, they accidentally left him in Jerusalem, and then, um, and so they, you know, they they had journeyed out of Jerusalem, and they realized, ooh, we lost Jesus, and so they headed back to Jerusalem. It took them three days to find him, right? And so uh, I'll start at uh, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple. This is chapter 2 of Luke, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff here. And I don't think it's an accident that we begin to see parallels because Joseph is type and shadow pointing us to Jesus. So you begin to see parallels between the two. And this is on purpose. God, the Holy Spirit, put these things in there on purpose. And if you're thinking, well, that's kind of weak, Rosebro, do you have anything stronger? Of course I do. Let's continue. Verse 12 of chapter 37 of Genesis. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Now go and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? Well, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I have heard them say, Let us go down to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now notice, the, they're, they're going to put him to death unjustly. He's really done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And so they're going to spill innocent blood. That's their intention, right? So come now, let us kill him. We'll throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And I think a good way to view what Reuben is doing here, Reuben is kind of like Pontius Pilate. Remember when Jesus is on trial and the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate? Does Pilate find anything wrong with Jesus? No, not at all. Pilate doesn't find anything wrong with Jesus. In fact, he tries to find a way to get him out of his predicament. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. This is verse 1. Now verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, well, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Then we scroll down to verse 23. Herod sends Jesus back, and then it says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us. Barabbas, man who had been thrown into prison and for the insurrection started in the city for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! 
crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. So I think Reuben, typologically here, is pointing us to Pontius Pilate. And I think that's a good way to think about it. So there they, they've set out to murder an innocent man, their own younger brother, uh, the one whom the father loves. And uh, and, and so, um, yeah, we got Reuben basically pleading for his life. Verse 21, chapter 37, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their father's hand, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him in this pit, here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So you'll notice that they stripped him of his robe. Same thing happens to Jesus, by the way. And, uh, you know, they ended up stripping Jesus of his robe, which they ultimately ended up casting lots for, and then had him beaten and flogged, right? That's what goes on in the uh, the New Testament. Well, we continue. So we're still back in chapter 37. So uh, they took him, threw him into a pit, verse 24. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. So then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. When Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell to him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Interesting. So Joseph is betrayed for pieces of silver. So is Jesus. Jesus is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now, verse 29, chapter 37. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So at this point, we can say typologically, Joseph is dead. For all intents and purposes, he's dead. And so you're going to have a death theme and a resurrection theme regarding Joseph. He dies and rises again, but we're we're at the death part right now. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, 
had brought him from the bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there and the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now let me give you kind of the text that we're going to use to kind of frame this. What we're seeing here, he's dead, yes, but also we're seeing it in type and shadow Jesus's incarnation where, um, yeah, he, the Lord is with him and everything he does prospers in his hands truly, but he, he does this as a servant. And we're going to use Philippians chapter 2. We'll start at verse 3 to kind of use this as the typological overlay. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very nature of God or form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, um, but he emptied himself, and by taking the form of a servant, and actually the Greek word is their slave, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is the passage, and this is an old hymn. This is an old hymn from, uh, you, know, you know, from the early church that, you know, you can see the, uh, the, the way it's set up in verses in the, uh, in the Greek. It doesn't work so well in the English. But this is, you know, it, it, really the mystery of the incarnation. Though he was rich, he, he empties himself and becomes a slave, a servant. So here we're seeing in type and shadow the story of Jesus through the life of Joseph. Now he has been, he's gone from being exalted, having this multicolored robe given to him by his father. And now he's lost everything and been emptied of everything. And now he is found in the form of a slave. And if we see the pattern here, Joe, you know, in Philippians, where he's found in the form of a servant, a slave, and is obedient, then he's going to be exalted and every knee will bow to him. That's the idea. If this is really type and shadow of Christ, here, here we see Joseph as slave and eventually he's going to be exalted and every knee will bow to him. Let's see if that plays out in the text. All right. So um, so here we go again. Uh, Genesis 39. So he's they had brought him. The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2. Became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, 
and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke with Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Now, I think typologically, we can just simply point to the fact that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, and yet is without sin. And here we see temptation, repeated temptation. And Joseph, like Jesus, doesn't give in to the temptation. He is without sin, but he will be falsely accused of sin, just like Jesus was. And you can kind of think, you know, if temptation, not only temptations, uh, you know, sins of the flesh, but also over and again, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law constantly were trying to get Jesus to trip up and to sin. And they were unable to do so. And ultimately, they will bring false charges against Jesus, you know, the charge of blasphemy, while they're the ones who are actually being blasphemous. So I think that's kind of fascinating. So you can see here, typologically, we get another picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus, that he would be tempted and repeatedly tempted and yet would not give in to the temptations and then be falsely accused. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to continue with the story of Joseph and showing the parallels typologically between Joseph and Jesus, because the story of, of the Old Testament is all about Christ. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> God's word I put on shows that do better on Broadway. 
Have you seen the Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. It's twist God's word. It puts on shows that do better on Broadway. Have you seen the Lion King? It'll be here on Sunday. He's the Twist God's word, I take your ties and spend it on private jets. Have you seen my bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. Twist God's word, he takes your ties and spends it on private jets. Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. God's word, I write bad books that will land you all in hell. I'll never say I'm sorry, cause I'll be there as well. It's with God's word, he writes bad books that will land us all in hell. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Bible is about Jesus rather than you, which, by the way, is what Jesus taught. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring 
Fighting for the Faith 2 Under the World, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio, it's a great way to support us. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We honestly, truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're going to continue with uh, Genesis chapter 39 as we work our way through the story of Joseph to show you the typological parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph reveals a lot of what the Messiah would be like and what he would go through. We continue. We'll go back to chapter 39, verse 11. One day when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were, uh, were there in the house, she, that's Potiphar's wife, caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that she that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has, br- he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house." Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me, but as soon as I lift up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison at the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So notice, he goes, he's punished for something he hasn't done. Yeah, he's in a sense here acting vicariously. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So the Lord is with him even in prison. You know. So we continue, chapter 40. Now sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their Lord. In the king of e- you know, the king of Egypt. Now I'm going to point something out here. Here we have the typological themes of bread and wine, and you know, in you know, the, well, this is pointing straight at the Lord's Supper. And so, in the Lord's Supper, we have bread and wine, and we have death and resurrection playing out in the story of the cupbearer and the baker. Watch what what happens here. There's even an allusion to Jesus's crucifixion. Verse 1 again, chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. And one night, 
they both dreamed. Now, they're not dreaming as if, well, you know, I want to be, you know, a dentist, you know, or, you know Hermie from uh, the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that's not what's going on here. This, these are prophetic dreams. One night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody with his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, Well, we have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. And as soon as it budded, it blossoms. Its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So here we have a theme of resurrection, if you would, all taking place on the third day. Important stuff. This is, again, typologically pointing us to the Lord's Supper. Okay, so... um. So he says, in three days, you know, this is what's going to happen. Verse 41, only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here I, I also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head, and Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. He's going to be hung on a tree. So here we have the, the theme of resurrection and death and even a typological foreshadowing of Jesus' own crucifixion because Jesus was hung on a tree. Galatians says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Yeah, this. <laughs> so here we've got bread, wine, death, resurrection, and even allusion typologically to the crucifixion of Christ. So on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday... He made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. 
And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream of its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all of the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. and But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for while they, they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians. But there was no one who could explain it to me. So then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I have told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. 
This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? And whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne shall I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, watch this, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. Let me read again from Philippians. Have this mind among you, Philippians 2, 5 which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So you'll notice that Joseph, Joseph was, well, emptied of all of his riches and became a slave. And now he has been exalted by Pharaoh. And there's none greater in all of Egypt than Joseph, except for Pharaoh, who is like a father to him. In Joseph, in whom is the Spirit of God. You'll notice even an allusion to the Trinity. Pharaoh, Father. Joseph, Son, within whom is the Spirit of God. And he is now exalted. And what is commanded of all of the people of Egypt? Bow the knee. This is no accident. This is prophetic typology of a type that no human being could possibly write all of this pointing to Jesus. None of it is coincidence. If you would, Joseph in a very real way is giving us a dress rehearsal of the life of Jesus Christ. He's pointing directly to him. Mm. So we, <laughs> this, I mean, it's just so amazing. Now watch this, verse 46, chapter 41. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Mm -hmm. How old was Jesus when he started his earthly ministry? 30. <laughs> and you'll notice that Joseph, he was, what, he was a slave for what, 12 and a half, 13 years? Yeah. Again, the numbers... Uh, there's something going on here. I don't even have time to plumb its depths. So Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all of the food of the seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put food in the cities. He put in every city the food from fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, till he ceased to measure it, for he could, it could not be measured. 
Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore him, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. And the name of the second was Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands. In all the land of Egypt there was bread. And then, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all of the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, for what he says what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all of the land, Joseph obtained all of the, opened all of the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all of the earth. Chapter 42. When Jacob had learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others, who, who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, well, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest of this of this day with is with is this day with our father, and there in one is no more. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Yeah, something going on here, and I'm not going to plow all of the depths of this, but the idea here is, is that God has raised up Jesus, uh, you know, uh, brought one of our own, if you would, and we did not recognize him for who he was, right? We, so there's something going on here as well. So we have a third day thing going on. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you, where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Now, a little note here. 
Joseph, in a way, is testing his brothers by, well, for fear that his brothers would have done to Benjamin what they did to him. You know, they intended to kill him, and he barely made it out alive. And and so, in a sense, he wants to know if his youngest brother is okay. There's something of that going on in this text. So bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the stress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. So you'll notice here that um you know they recognize something's going on here and they believe that God is punishing them and they the guilt of their sin is there and it's now being brought to mind and they believe that God's hand is against them but in reality God is not trying to judge them or to punish them God is in reality saving them that's what's going on so they said they said to one another in truth we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw his distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen that is why this distress has come upon us and reuben answered them did i not tell you not to sin against the boy but you did not listen so now there comes a reckoning for his blood they did not know that joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them Then he turned away from them and he wept and he returned to them and spoke to them. Notice that this is very difficult for Joseph to put on this pretense that he's, you know, that, you know, where he's being rough with them. This is killing him on the inside. And this really type and shadow points us to the character of Christ and his kindness towards us. So he returned to them and he spoke to them and he said to Simeon and he, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And, and and as their hearts failed them, at this their hearts failed them, and they were turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Notice their guilt is there, and they're fearing God's wrath and punishment, that somehow all of their chickens have come to roost. But God is not punishing them. He is saving them. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, took us to be spies of the land, and we said to him, We are honest men, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, one is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men, leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine for your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then they shall know, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they had and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All of this has come against me. 
Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If I har- if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go, again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And if you will not send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. So notice, Judah steps forward and basically offers to be a substitute. Mm -hmm. And this is the tribe of the Messiah right here, the tribe of Judah, not an accident. Verse 11. Then the father, then their father Israel said to them, "If I must, if it must be so, then do this: take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, um, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man." And may he send back your brother and uh, your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and and Benjamin. And they rose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house. Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. 
and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Wow. He speaks peace to them and says, I've received your money. And who is the one who has given them the treasure? They're God. That's right. I mean, this is just absolutely amazing. So when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up, and he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Again, note the kindness of Joseph. And you think of that passage of Scripture, you know, regarding you know the death of Lazarus. It says the shortest verse in all of Scripture says simply this, Jesus wept. So did Joseph, because Joseph is a type and shadow pointing us to Christ. So we will look for a place to weep. He entered his chamber and he wept there. Verse 31. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and they by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for it is an abomination to Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Now, what this means is, is that Joseph had them sit down at the table, and Joseph sat them down by the order of who is the oldest to the youngest. These are all grown men. So, I mean, for him to be able to do that is quite a feat, right? So portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much of any of theirs, and they drank, and they were merry with him. Chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. 
And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servant to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants." And he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah, now watch this, again, substitution going on here. Judah is going to step forward and offer his life. Offer his life in exchange as a substitute for his brother Benjamin. Watch. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Notice confession of sin. He's confessing the Lord has found out our sin, and he's got nothing now. He's just empty, empty-handed. But he said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, you go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and he said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I might set my eyes on him. We said to my lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, You shall not see my face again. When we had went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again and buy us a little food, he said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, Then, as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant 
became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah steps forward now for real as a substitute. And all of this is pointing to Christ. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he has offered his life for yours. His life for mine. And if you want typologically to see yourself in this text, then see yourself as Benjamin. See yourself as the one whom God the Father would die without. That's how much he loves you. And so Judah steps forward to bear the sin of Benjamin so that Benjamin can go free. All of this is about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus is doing for us. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all of those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all of the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you, and there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all of my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all of his brothers 
and went upon and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with them. Notice, this is not eye for an eye. This is not judgment. This is not Joseph saying, that's it, you guys have fell into my trap. Now I'm going to do to you what you did to me. No, none of that. None of that at all. Instead, what we see is God is the one who sent Joseph ahead of them, and he is saying that what they did as evil, God has worked for your salvation. A good cross-reference to this that explicitly spells this out is later in the story of Joseph in chapter 50 of Genesis. Here's what it says starting at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, this is after uh, Jacob dies, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And this caused also Joseph to weep. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You can even say saved as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. So the idea, again, all of this now points to Jesus' crucifixion, where the ultimate act of evil committed by humanity, and we are the ones who are culpable in Christ's death, what we meant for evil, God has worked for our salvation. The most heinous act in all of human history, the crucifying of the only innocent one among humanity, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That evil act of murder, God has worked for our salvation in much the same way that God worked salvation for the nation of Israel through the attempted murder, and in a sense, the death of Joseph. And now he is resurrected. You get the idea here? You know, you couldn't actually kill Joseph, so you have to typologically do it. And all of this is pointing to Jesus and what he has done to save us, turning our evil to good and working from our evil our own salvation. It's absolutely stunning, unexpected, and gracious and merciful. Back to chapter 45, verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. 
the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is, al- is still alive and I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now I'll leave the story right there. But as you can see, when you start looking for Jesus in the story of Joseph, he's hiding in plain sight. Of all of the Old Testament patriarchs, Joseph is the one that with great depth and with many different facets prefigures in type and shadow the, well, the incarnation, the servant of, you know, the servant Jesus Christ, his his descent into hell, his resurrection, his rising from the grave, his exaltation and every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, and the evil that was worked against him working for our own salvation. Joseph is, you just draw a direct line to Jesus. And if you read yourself into this story, you have missed the whole point, and you have no idea what this story is about. You make it about you or make it about me, that's just foolishness, blindness. And it shows that you don't understand that Jesus himself has made it clear. Scripture is about him. Look for Jesus in these stories and you will find him. Type and shadow all pointing to Christ. None of this is coincidence. All of it is prophetic. All of it is worked by the Holy Spirit. All of it is there to comfort us and assure us of our own salvation. One by our brother whom we betrayed. Jesus Christ. I think you get the point. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to actually review a Brian Houston sermon that he delivered at at, uh, Liberty University to see if he has any clue that the story of Joseph is really about Christ. Now, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, 
Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Quick break when we come back. Let's see what Brian Houston does with this text. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The internet and the countless technologies around us, such as smartphones, tablets, PCs, cameras, video games, have become quintessential parts of our daily lives. In fact, our broadcast might be streaming on your phone right now. Communication and access to information has advanced faster than our ability to manage it responsibly. Texting and email are but two small examples of how technology has provided the means necessary to communicate over long distances, while at the same time giving people the ability to hide behind shadowy anonymity. By its very nature, technology is a double-edged sword. It provides the immediacy we desire and need, yet it also provides gateways for isolation from proper supervision. As adults, we can govern our own actions and submit to others for accountability. Or not. But how good are we at modeling or overseeing technology in the hands of children? Do our children have more knowledge about technology than we do? Do we choose to trust our children with such powerful tools without any oversight? Many people nowadays are aware of the dangers of the internet, such as cyberbullying, sexting, predators, stalking, trolling, video game addiction, pornography, etc., etc., but simple awareness is rarely met with measures of protection, appropriate oversight, or engaging communication. Typically, parents are trusting and simply managing from crisis to crisis because they don't know where to start or what to do in the first place. The Parentum was created as a centralized destination to provide parents information on the available security tools for all internet-connected devices. We provide educational instructions on how to protect families from technological immersion and information on a host of potential life-altering risks born from the dangerous elements of the internet. The Parent Dome's mission is to empower parents to be actively aware and engaged stewards of technology for their children. Technology advances daily, and those seeking to exploit it with the intent to cause harm maintains that same pace. At the Parent Dome, we continually update our website in order to properly address the changing needs of parents and families to better defend them against predatory exploits. Please visit us at www.parentdome.com for further information. Thank you. Hey, ho! We got the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Liberty University. Brian Houston presiding, and I, I, the sermon doesn't have a name, so we'll just call it, Oh, Be a Dreamer. <laughs> That's what we'll call it. And uh, the opening portion, you know, in fact, like, the, the really the front end of this whole sermon is somewhat loosely based upon what we just read regarding Joseph. And let's see what Brian Houston does with it. Does he know that the scriptures are about Jesus, not us? 
does he even recognize that Joseph typologically points us to Christ, his incarnation, his humiliation, his exaltation, his crucifixion, all of that, and his resurrection. It's all there in the story of Joseph. Well, we're going to see. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Brian Houston as he tries his hand at explaining to us what the story of Joseph is all about. Here we go. Come on, why don't we give the Lord Jesus Christ a great ovation in the fruit? Come on, give the Lord Jesus a great ovation. <laughs> He's the King of Kings. Yeah, he is. Jesus is the King of Kings. I'm glad you're giving Jesus an ovation. Let's see if you keep it going into your sermon on Joseph. Lord of Lords, Father, we just thank you for your presence in this place. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that every one of these young people are important to you. Father, I thank you that you have a purpose and you have a plan for every single life here. Lord, I speak, I pray into every young person here's God-given future. Lord, we believe in Jesus' name that you're leading them, Father, out upon the water, the great unknown. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 <laughs> well, how nice it is to be here and to have some of our team at Hillsong Church. We've basically got three genres of praise and worship, young and free, uh, young and free, and that's kind of headed up by uh, Bobby's and my daughter, Laura. And then we've got Hillsong United, and many of you would know Hillsong United. They obviously uh, have had a huge impact. God's used them. And then we have Hillsong Worship, which is kind of the best of all the worship. And these guys are Hillsong Worship. So some, like Taya, from Hillsong United, and uh, others from Hillsong Church who are part of our worship. All right, I know you wanted to know all that. Fantastic. Now, I hope you can understand my accent. (laughs) You need to, because in heaven, everyone speaks like this. (laughs) The thing I get told most over here is that I sound like uh, Bruce the Shark from Finding Nemo. Anyone already thought that? <laughs> well, we've been here doing a tour with my book and with a new album called uh, uh, Open Heaven. And so we're really glad to be here. I want to talk to you about dreams. When you were 17, Many of you may only be 17. So when you were 17 or at the age you are now, what do you dream about? Do you have a dream? Do you believe it's God's will for you to have a dream? Do you come from an environment where dreams were encouraged? Or perhaps do you come from an environment where dreams were discouraged? Where you were told not to hope for too much? I'm a huge believer in what God can do with a dream, a dream inspired by Him, by the Holy Spirit. When I was a little boy, I dreamed. I dreamed of one day being a leader, a pastor, of one day even, if God gave me opportunity, 
to plant and build a church. But I can tell you honestly, at the age of 61, that God has not only exceeded my dream a little bit, but like it says in Ephesians chapter 3, He's done that exceeding, abundant, and above anything we could ever ask or think. According Now, is He preaching about Jesus, or is He preaching about you? He's simply preaching about you. And is the story of Joseph all about the importance of having a dream? No. It's all about the importance of having a Savior. Big difference. His power that works in us. What do you dream of? What do you dream about? What do you aspire to? What do you hope for? Do you believe you've got these God-breathed desires? What do you pray for when it comes to your life? I'm an absolute believer that you're on earth for a purpose. A God-given purpose. Genesis 37 tells us the story of perhaps the greatest dreamer in the scriptures, whose name obviously was Joseph. Greatest dreamer as if he was, you know, a guy who dreamed about his purpose? That's not what the story of Joseph is about at all. And in verse 2 it says, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph being, what, 17 years old was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his brothers, because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors, a technicolor dream coat. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, notice this, they hated him. His brothers hated him because he dared to dream and could not speak peaceably to him. They they hated him because he dared to dream? Yeah, no, that's not why they hated him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. They hated him. Now it says they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behind my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then Joseph dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Let me talk to you for a moment about the power of dreams. You know, the scripture says... The the what? The, The power of dreams. That's not what the story is about at all. And by making this about the power of dreams, he's making it so that this this story, which points directly to Jesus, is no longer about Jesus. He wanted to give Jesus a big round of applause and acknowledge that he's king of kings, 
And yet he doesn't even recognize that this text is about the very one he claims is king of kings. This has nothing to do with some pattern for your life as if the application of the story of Joseph is, well, you need to have a dream for your life the way Joseph did. That's not what this text is teaching at all. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, people perish. Another Now, Proverbs 29, 18, notice he says, where there is no vision, the people perish. The problem is that he's quoting half of a sentence. He's not quoting the entire sentence. That is not what this text is saying. Let me read it to you in context. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, comma, yeah, that's right. Here's the rest of the half. But blessed is he who keeps the law. That would be the written word of God. The vision that we need is not some dream for our life, some dream destiny thingy. No, the vision, the prophetic vision we need, it's written for us in the written word of God. That's what Proverbs 29:18 is saying. Brian Houston is deceiving these students at Liberty University. Badly. Another version says, where there's no vision, people dwell carelessly. Still another version, people cast off restraint. In the New Living Translation, it says, where there's no vision, the people run wild. Do you know why many young people lose their way? Because oftentimes, they were never ever encouraged to dream, to live their life with vision. So it has nothing to do with the fact that they're sinners by nature. No, it's because they were never encouraged to have vision and to dream. He's twisted Genesis 37, and now he's twisted Proverbs 29. And sadly, the reason some young people break out, do their own thing, run wild, dwell carelessly, sadly, God-given potential can perish, is because of a lack of vision. A lack of dream. In the message, God-given vision can perish. What about the sinners who perish in the lake of fire? Translation, it says it like this. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. Yeah, that's the message paraphrase, and you should not be trying to exegete that. That is a terrible paraphrase. And never meant to be used uh, for exegeting and preaching from the pulpit. And again, I just point you to a good translation like the ESV, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. In other words, the written word of God. We continue. People stumble all over themselves because they've got no insight, no vision, no dream for the future. We don't know everything that's in front of us. When I was 17... I was heading into, into college myself, and to be honest, I had no real idea of what was in front of me, but I do tell you, I had a dream, and it was a dream that burned inside of me. Now notice, who's he preaching about? Himself. He's not preaching about Jesus, yet the story of Joseph points us directly to Christ. And I'd encourage every single one of you to have that kind of God-given dream that burns deep down inside of you. Because I've seen the power of it. But listen, first, your dream is going to threaten some people. You see, think about... The, what? My dream is going to... Th- oh, man. I mean, this is just narcissism. This is called narcissistic eisegesis. 
reading yourself into the story of Joseph. You're not in there. The reality is, his brothers hated him because he had favor on his life. And then when he started to dream, the Bible says they hated him even more. And then when he had another dream, the Bible says that he, they hated him even more. So they hated him, they hated him more, and then they hated him more than when they hated him more before. I guess they just didn't like him. Do you know? Yeah, and that's what's going to happen to you. See, if you get a God-given dream vision for your life, people are going to hate you too, the way they hate Joseph. That's not what this text is teaching at all. Your dream will threaten some people. Because to be honest with you, oftentimes if someone dares to dream, there'll always be cynics, there'll be people who perhaps they compare you with a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, and with a dream, with perhaps their lack of purpose. So don't be surprised if you dare to dream, if not everybody likes your dream. And sadly, just like Joseph, it was the people closest to him who didn't like his dream. It was his own siblings. It was his own brothers. Do you know at times it's not people far away, people out on the edges of your life that get most threatened by your dream. Sometimes it's your own brothers and sisters, people close to you. Again, because they have the sense that your life is going somewhere. And it's amazing how maybe the people you would... Ex- now notice, he's not filling their hearts and minds with Jesus. He's filling their hearts and minds with themselves. To, to, to pat you on the back and encourage you are the ones who are the most threatened by your dream. Maybe it's people you've done life with, people you grew up with, people you went to church and to youth group with. Sometimes those are the people, but understand if you're going to carry a dream, not everybody is going to like you and not everybody is going to like your dream. Second thing about dreamers. Yeah, Genesis 37 doesn't say anything about you receiving a dream from God. Not one verse in Genesis 37 says, oh, and just like Joseph received a dream and a vision, you're going to receive one too. Yeah, this, this is historical narrative that points to Christ, not to you. The first is your dream will threaten some people. And the second thing is dreamers never stop dreaming. They keep dreaming new dreams. I mean, that's how it was for Joseph. He dreamed a dream, and in his dream, literally he saw fields and the crop were all bowing down as he was one single crop that stood upright. It was a dream of leadership. He saw people bowing down to him. And to be honest, his life looked nothing like that at the time he dreamed. But that's what he believed for. But then the Bible says he had another dream. He never stopped dreaming. This time, he dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the stars would bow. He never stopped dreaming? I don't think Joseph has another dream from chapter 37 on. What are you talking about? You're not correct. You're, you're, notice, he's not actually reading the story. He's not actually having them open their Bibles and read along as he exegetes the text. No, he's just making stuff up now. Down to him. So that was a huge dream that he had. I would encourage you not only to dream, but never stop dreaming in your life. I'm 61 years old. But- yeah, um, Joseph... He didn't dream like daydream or imagine this. This was these were prophetic dreams given to him by God. Yeah, um, and he did stop dreaming once he was <laughs> thrown into the pit and then sold into slavery in Egypt. No more dreams for Joseph. Weird. 
can't drive onto a campus like this without it inspiring a dream inside of me. I can't see God doing incredible supernatural things like is happening here without it inspiring me to dream some more. I've always been a dreamer. I was the guy who kind of... Yeah, apparently that's a, he thinks this is a good thing, preaching about not Jesus. He's preaching about himself. It off in class because I'd, you know, go into my dream and think about the future and think about life and think about what I would love to do with life. It's kind of the way I'm wired. And I can tell you now, I passed out a church that God's used and it's global. And to be honest, as I said, it goes beyond what my wife and I could ever have imagined. We were thinking of a little church on the outskirts of Sydney in Australia. And our dream sometimes was just that someone would, that people would come next week. So I've learned that God will exceed our dreams. Never stop dreaming. I pray that you will be inspired to dream today and that throughout your life you will never stop dreaming. So the goal for the sermon is that they'll be inspired to dream for their life. But that is not what's going on in the story of Joseph at all. Like, not at all. Literally. This is pointing us to Jesus. Do you think that the story of Joseph was written so that you could be inspired to have a dream? Or was it written to show you Jesus and his mercy and his kindness and his love for you and saving you? I remember 20 years ago when our church turned 10 years old. I remember sitting at my desk one day and I closed my eyes and I started to think about the church that I could see. And it wasn't the church that we led then. It was a young, sort of vibrant church, but no one really knew who Hillsong was. But I remember just sitting at my desk, thinking, praying, and starting to write what we call the church that I see. It talked about buildings that struggled to contain the increase. It talked about a church where the city and nation could not ignore it. It talked about all sorts of other things that were just a dream. And today, by God's grace, if I look back at what was written on that page, which now is in the lobby of every place we have church, if I look at it now, it's more of a description of the church that we have. And that's why when we turned 30 years of age, just two years ago, I sat down again and I wrote the church that I now see. And it's bold, it's gregarious, it's out there, it's, uh, you know, it's scary. It's self-focused rather than Christ-centered. But I believe we should never stop dreaming. Your dream will threaten some people. Dreamers keep dreaming new dreams. And a third thing about dreams and dreamers is dreamers understand other dreamers. That's how it was for Joseph. I mean, he was ended up... Joseph understood other dreamers? What? Prison, and when he was in prison, he was able to interpret the dreams of a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker, or something like that. What? Oh, man. Or something like that. It was a baker and the cupbearer. Ultimately, he was led to the Pharaoh himself. He was able to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, and that's how Joseph came into that place of leadership that he had dreamed about. It was God-breathed. So, Drip fans, I would encourage you in life, hang around other dreamers. So the whole point of the 
a cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh having a dream, and then Pharaoh himself having a dream. What made it so that Joseph could be successful in seeing his dream come to pass is that he was hanging out with other dreamers. Are you out of your mind? This is the most irrational mishandling of God's word and so narcissistic at that that I have ever heard. Stay in an environment where dreams are encouraged. Stay in an environment, build the kind of relationships and friendships where you all have different dreams, but you encourage because someone who has no dream doesn't understand the world or the realm of a dreamer. And so that's often where discouragement will come. That's often where cynicism will come. That's often where those who would try to squash your dream would come from. But if you've got the kind of friends where iron sharpens iron, and you've got the kind of dreams that... Really, The story of Joseph has nothing to do with you having a dream for your life. The other dream is too, uh, even as past, with pastors, you know. There are some pastors who have kind of got old and cynical and negative and they've lost sight of their dream. The Bible says, young men shall see vision, old men dream dreams. I think when you get older, if you lose your dream, the moment an older person stops dreaming, they also lose their capacity to inspire vision in younger people. So that's why I never want us to keep stop dreaming. All right. So notice he made reference to the prophecy of Joel, which you can also find in the uh, in Acts chapter two. No context given. Just did old men will dream dreams. See, you know, you, you, as you get older, you gotta you know have a vision for your life, and you gotta be a dreamer. Yeah, that's not what Joel meant. Go read it in context in the book of Acts, and you'll see that uh, that was in reference to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and Joel's prophecy has now been fulfilled. Let me talk about a dreamer, what a dreamer will need, and what Joseph needed for his dream to become his destiny. And the first one is you're going to need the will to live. Why would you need the will? Yeah, you want your dream to come about, you need the will to live. What are you talking about, Brian? Therefore, because there'll be plenty of things that try to kill your dream. And maybe even like Joseph, some things that would try to kill you. I mean, for Joseph... Every set of the way, his brothers tried to kill him when he was serving in Potiphar's house. Uh, slavery tried to kill his dream. And then accusation tried to kill his... Slavery tried to kill Joseph's dream. Really, which text says that in the story of Joseph? I just read it all out. Dream. Imprisonment tried to kill his dream. When he became the leader of all the land of Egypt, then famine tried to kill his dream. There were always things lining up trying to kill his Famine tried to kill Joseph's dream. Really, where did you read that again? You need the will to live because discouragement might try to kill your, dis- your dream or distraction might try to kill your dream or temptation might try to kill your dream. There are always things that the enemy would try to use to kill your dream. And I'll tell you why, because your dream is a threat. It's a threat to the kingdom of darkness because of its potential for the purposes of God. Yeah, which scripture says that my dream is a threat to the kingdom of darkness? The story of Joseph points us to Jesus, not some dream destiny thingy in my life dream may look entirely different than my dream. But all I will say is don't be surprised if discouragement or disappointment or sometimes challenge comes along the way because of the power and the potential of your dream. So, your dream 
You're going to need the will to live. Second thing Joseph needed was the will to succeed. And why did he need the will to succeed? Because God gave him a dream of success. God's not going to give you a dream of mediocrity. He's not going to give you a dream of failure. He's not going to give you a so-so type dream. He's going to give you an outrageous dream that can have an impact well beyond yourself and make a difference in your generation that impacts other people, helps other people, blesses other people. I believe God wants to give you a dream not just for you, but for the purpose of God in your life. So you're going to need the word to succeed because that's the kind of God, the, 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 the kind of God that we have and the kind of dream he inspires. Notice. Um Brian Houston is just making stuff up. He's not teaching anything that God's word actually says. He's making reference to God's word and then just making stuff up. This is a form of scratching, itching ears, telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Listen to it here. In Genesis chapter 41, verse 40 to 43, Pharaoh says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. That's what I need. Open my shirt up a bit. Hairy chest, gold chain around my neck. It's cool. (laughs) Anyone out there? And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, bow the knee. So, in other words, God gave him a dream of success. And ultimately, obviously, through interpreting dreams, he ended up being the leader under Pharaoh of the entire land of Egypt. And indeed, people bowed down to him, and ultimately his own brothers did end up bowing down to him. You need the will to live, you need the will to succeed, and you need the will to serve. Because... Basically, you live to succeed, and you succeed to serve. Joseph needed the... Yeah, again, the story of Joseph doesn't teach any of this. Not any of it. ...will to serve because that's what he ended up doing. He was serving his, his dad when he was out there with his brothers. He ended up serving in Potiphar's house when he was servant to Potiphar. He ended up serving in jail by interpreting the dreams of other dreamers. Ultimately, he ended up serving by helping and stewarding the land of Egypt in a time of huge famine and his wise choices and his wise decisions allowed him in a time of huge economic crisis of famine to pilot Egypt through it and ultimately be a blessing to the lands around. So think about that for a moment. You need the will to live, for your dream to live. You need the will to succeed. You need the will to serve. You know, most people have the will to live. It's, it's you, 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 you. The story is about Jesus. Really, it really, truly points us right to Christ. It's not about you. This is not a story about you. Part of our human nature, the will to live. Fewer people have the will to succeed. And I'll tell you why fewer people have the will to succeed. Because to be honest with you, it's not going to come without a price. There's sacrifices that have to be made. 
A lot of people may look to someone and think, man, I would love to do what they do or I'd love to have what they have. But oftentimes what they don't want or don't even want to know about is what has cost them, the price they've paid, the sacrifices they've made to be where they are. You're going to need the will to live because I'll tell you right now, succeeding, which is God's purpose for your life, however you define success, maybe we define it different than a secular society. But I will tell you this right now, success doesn't come without a price. And as soon as someone fails to remember that there's a price to pay, it's the day that their dream diminishes. So most have the will to live, fewer have the will to succeed, and even fewer have the will to serve because we're so good at turning things back on ourselves. But if you have that will to live, and if you have the will to succeed, and if you have the will to serve... You, you, you. These made this text about you, and it's not about you then I believe you can be part of the 1%, a once-in-a-generation type leader, the kind of leader that inspires others. Oh, yeah. So he's telling one-size-fits-all to a convocation of all these students of uh, Liberty University. You can be a 1% kind of leader. Yeah, that's what Story of Joseph is doing. No, it's not. Not at all. Be all God has called them to be. So don't underestimate the power of a dream when someone will count the cost and pay the price. And can I tell you this? The greatest friend you have when it comes to your dream becoming your destiny is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not just a force. He is God, the Holy Spirit. And why is the Holy Spirit the greatest friend we have in seeing our dream become destiny? Because So apparently the Holy Spirit now is being brought into having you basically read yourself into the story of Genesis and uh, Joseph. Yeah, I don't think the Holy Spirit would have us do this. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ. To be honest with you, that's the language the Holy Spirit speaks. The Scripture says about the Holy Spirit, He'll show you things to come. It's in John chapter 16, verse 13. In other words, his realm is the future. He will show you things to come. In Acts 2, verse 17, I already quoted it. It says your sons and your... Out of context, every verse out of context, he's not actually reading any biblical text and rightly exegeting it. ...shall prophesy. It says your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I think when someone loses their vision for the future... Sadly, they'll always return to their past. And the moment anyone loses their dream, they fail to be able any longer to inspire vision in their sons and their daughters. And I'm talking... What are you talking about? This text doesn't teach any of this, nor does any biblical text teach any of this. These are doctrines of men that, well... Brian Houston is just making this up out of his own mind. He's not finding this in the written word of God. Not just about my natural sons and daughters, though I pray I've inspired vision in them. One of my sons, of course, is co-pastor at Hillsong, New York City, and heads up Hillsong United. Unfortunately, he couldn't be here today. But I'll tell you now that I've got to keep dreaming if I want to inspire a generation. If I want to stay connected and relevant to younger people, and I sure do, then I believe I need to understand the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will keep you future-focused. How does the Holy Spirit help us to see our dream become our destiny? Well, I think, firstly, 
the Bible says the Holy Spirit will guide you. It's in John 16, verse 13. It says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and listen to it. He will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit will tell you things to come. And the scripture says he will guide you. I love the thought that the Holy Spirit has guided us. Yeah, by the way, John 16, the referent there is not us. Jesus is speaking to the apostles, the disciples who are going to be the apostles. The promise is, you know, regarding the Holy Spirit giving them guidance and speaking, you know, you know, things to come, that's not a blanket promise to all of the church. That was a promise given to the apostles. Often even when we're unconscious, unaware of it, the Holy Spirit's prodding you, guiding you, keeping you on course with your God-given purpose. And to me, that's an incredible encouragement to know that the person of the Holy Spirit is there as my guide, nudging me, guiding me, leading me on toward God's purposes for my life. You know, I love that thought, the Holy Spirit guiding us, because it's a little like what Jesus said. He said, if an earthly father, his son asks him for bread, a father is not going to give him a stone, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him? How do you know that this dream is not just a little girl's fairy tale? What dream are you talking about? Because no scripture says God's going to give you a dream like he gave to Joseph. No scripture. Little boy's dream. How do you know it's not just this big fantasy that you've built up yourself because the Holy Spirit will guide you and he will guide you towards truth. He'll guide you towards God's purpose. He'll guide you towards God's word for your life. Anyone believe me here? Give me a wave. Anyone believe me here? Just checking you right there. I don't believe you. I can tell right off the bat you are twisting and mangling God's word and you are stealing a text that is about Jesus and points us to him and you are making it about yourself and about those children at uh, Liberty University. Yeah, I know they're actually young adults, but you get what I'm saying. This man is deceiving people. He's not teaching them about Christ. Fantastic. I like it here. I might stay. I'm going to become a freshman at the school. (laughs) I'm going to join the football team. I hear it needs a bit of help, so I'm going to join. I'm only telling you what I've heard. (laughs) That went down well. Hey, the Holy Spirit is our guide. How else does the Holy Spirit help us when it comes to... (laughs) I'm not a school teacher, don't worry. Hey, how else does the Holy Spirit help us toward our God-given dream? Well, the scripture says, literally, that the Holy Spirit helps us. And I love that. It's in John 16, verse 7. I'll read it to you. It says there about the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus speaking. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, Jesus said, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And you know, in the Amplified, it enlarges that word helper. It uses words like comforter, counselor. Helper, advocate, intercessor, strengthener, standby. You know, 
There's a reason why the Holy Spirit helps us. Because I can tell you right now that sometimes being a dreamer is a lonely road. Yeah, uh, John 16 does not say anything about the Holy Spirit helping us achieve some dreamer vision for our lives. John 16, I'll I'll read it out, uh, verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. You can say paraclete, that's another way of putting it. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So, yeah, the, the, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin and unbelief. That's what Jesus said. It doesn't say, and he's going to help you achieve your dream destiny. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is our helper to help us achieve, achieve the dreams for our lives. You're reading that into this text, and it's not in there. Not everybody understands the realm of a dreamer because you're seeing things that perhaps they can't see. But I love that thought. That the Holy Spirit is there to help us. He's your comforter. Thinking about Abraham, he had a dream. God gave him a dream. It involved the stars of the sky and the vast sands of the desert. It was all about fruitfulness. And then one day he stood in such a lonely place. No, it wasn't about fruitfulness. It was about all the nations being blessed through the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. Man, wow. He's like literally robbing Christ of all of his glory. All of these texts are about him, and he's made them about himself and you. On a mountain, when his son was on an altar, prepared to sacrifice the very vehicle that God was going to use to fulfill the dream that he would have. (laughs) Those come after him, like the stars of the sky and the sand of the desert. He stood there in a lonely place. Dreaming sometimes means it's a lonely road, but we have a helper, a come alongside. I love that. The scripture talks about him as our advocate. In other words, he's a spokesperson speaking on your behalf, intercessor. That means he's praying for you. I love it. Stand by. Maybe you can see me, but if the Holy Spirit is anointing this message, then that part's not me. That's my standby. I love the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the fact the Holy Spirit guides you. He helps you when it comes to your God-given dream. And it goes on in verse 8 and says the Holy Spirit convicts us. John 16, 8 says, And when he has come, it's Jesus speaking again, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. In other words, he'll convict you. Yeah, John 16 doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit helping us achieve our dreams. But it does say that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and uh, regarding uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right and wrong. How do you stay on course with your God-given dream? How do you stay on? Yeah, again, uh, the the Holy Spirit convicting the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit keeping you on course for your God-given dream. You have literally hijacked. John 16 and make it made it say all kinds of stuff it doesn't say at all 
And Jesus is the one who spoke these words. You are taking Christ's words and twisting them and taking God's name in vain in the process. Of course, so that that dream does ultimately enable God to do exceeding, abundant, and above what you could ever ask or think. Well, the fact is, the scripture says the Holy Spirit is convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts us of what is right and what's wrong. And I love that thought because there'll be plenty of things, as I've already spoken, that the enemy would love to use, like this distraction, like discouragement, like losing sight of your dream. And it's when dreams are gone that potential perishes, that people start dwelling carelessly, they lose their way, people run wild. I love the thought that the Holy Spirit convicts us. They keep us living our lives by conviction. Young people. Yeah, so the Holy Spirit is helping us live our dreams by conviction. I mean, did did he take illegal drugs before he gave the sermon? None of this is biblically lucid or even connected at all to what these texts say. I can tell you right now, along the way, there will be temptations, there will be discouragement, there will be other choices that the enemy can make look awfully attractive. But if we live our lives by conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit will keep you on course with his purpose for your life. It's a sad thing that people get taken out. People get taken out because of things that perhaps at the time look more attractive than your God-given dream. But if we do live our lives letting the Holy Spirit guide us, letting the Holy Spirit help us, letting the Holy Spirit convict us, keep us on course, show us what is right and wrong, then there is no stopping what God is able to do in Jesus' name. Amen. And none of this has to do with the story of Joseph or what's said in John 16. <laughs> Amen. You know, the scripture even says the Holy Spirit improves us. Because I don't know about you, but I look at the things God puts in my heart and I'm thinking, well, how could I ever do that? I mean, how could I, how could I, how could I build a global church? How could I build a global ministry? How could I head a Bible college with not as many as this, but a lot, a lot of students from based upon how you mangle God's word, it's clear to me God didn't put any of this stuff on your heart. You weren't sent by the Holy Spirit. All around the world, I mean, if I look at it in my own strength, but listen to this, because I think it's awesome. If you somehow feel inadequate when it comes to the dream that God's put in your heart, well, it says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4, and it's talking about the experience of Acts chapter 2, And it says, he who speaks in a strange tongue edifies and improves himself. It talks about the Holy Spirit's capacity to improve us. And you know, totally twisting 1 Corinthians 14. Reading it from the Amplified. The the, the Amplified is a translation you should stay away from, like, at all possible. Because it basically uses the the Bible-twisting technique known as illegitimate totality transfer. Where you basically, when you know a word appears, you pour every lexical lexicon definition into the word, and the, yeah, that's no way of understanding what that word means. You have to understand what it means in context. The Amplified is a uh, Bible used by Bible twisters in the Word of Faith heresy. I really believe that oftentimes for us to fulfill what God's given us, we can't do in our own strength. 
but we do have the Holy Spirit who can bring us up to speed, who can improve us, who can show us things not yet done, and he can show us things yet to come in Jesus' name. We have the Holy Spirit working on our side. I find that so encouraging to know that the Holy Spirit is leading me, is drawing me, is helping me, is bringing me up to speed, can cause me beyond my own capacity to lead according to his promise and his purpose. Let me tell you one other thing. I believe the Holy Spirit will keep you relevant so that you and your life will keep connecting to the world around and about you. How are you getting this from the Bible? That your life, your dream, will have a sense of relevance to the world around and about you. It's a sad thing if we have a dream, but it's totally disconnected from the real needs of people and really distracts us or disconnects us from God's purposes in our lives. But, you know, when in Acts chapter 2, the scripture says people filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke other languages, they were languages people could understand. I think sometimes people interpret the Holy Spirit kind of making you weird. But I- yeah, they were known human languages. So that's your proof that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to keep us relevant. Really? If the Holy Spirit makes you weird, I think he makes you relevant. Suddenly, the early church was speaking languages that people recognized, languages that people understood. One set of people who heard the things of God in their own language were the Cretans. Now, you know what the Bible says later on in the New Testament about Cretans? It calls them evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And in case there's any doubt, the very next verse says this testimony is true. In other words, they really were evil beasts and lazy gluttons. But they could understand in their own language the marvelous works of God, the Bible says. The wonderful works of God. Not the negative, not the miserable, not the small thinking works of God. No, the marvelous, the wonderful things of God. And if we understand the presence of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit can guide us, how he can help us, how he can convict us, how he can build us and improve us, and ultimately how he can keep our lives connected to the world around and about us so that our message doesn't isolate, but our message instead enables us to be the right people in the right place at the right time because i've found when we've planted churches anywhere in the world whether it's notice what he said that our message doesn't isolate wow this guy is indoctrinating them into an ideology not into christian doctrine in paris or stockholm and or copenhagen or in germany or in barcelona or in spain or in new york la or anywhere else every time it's been through the right person at the right place at the right time and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit can do for you. But you can be the right person in the right place at the right time. And in that moment, God can do anything in and through you. What do you dream about? It's all about you. What do you dream about? What do you dream about? Excuse me for pointing. What do you dream about? What was your dream at 17 or 18 or 19. What are you dreaming right now? Because I've learned in life never to underestimate what God can do with someone who dares to dream. Unbelievable. I mean, who needs a crucified and risen Savior when God's going to give you a dream to change the world? I mean, you're so important, you know. I'll finish with one story. There's a young guy in our church. 
And uh, he is very, 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 very uh, capable. Actually, he was a freak of an athlete, a professional rugby player, a rugby league player. That's the real man's game. That's what we play without helmets and pads. And <laughs> I've offended the football community twice now. And uh, he was top, absolute top, elite athlete. As a matter of fact, he was MVP twice in his mid-twenties. And uh, just last year, he was the MVP for the whole league of rugby. A very professional, very competitive league. And after the season and just after he received his award for being the most valuable player, he made a huge announcement. And his huge announcement was that he was going to try out he quit mid-contract, mid, mid he quit playing rugby, he's going to try out for the NFL. And people laughed at his dream. And people thought he's got to be kidding. His background was that as a young guy, he had all this talent, but he has lost his way. He found himself in trouble, literally got shot at. He got shot at in a park, and fortunately it missed. Was, he wouldn't even be alive, but it absolutely brought him into realizing there's more to life and then through another amazing experience where he ended up playing rugby uh, for Fiji, which was kind of his homeland. And the villages that he played with were so poor and so humble. And even their quarters where they stayed were so different than what he was used to as a professional athlete. But they were, had a humility about them. They'd get up and pray at 5 a.m. every morning. And it was compulsory. The whole team had to get up at 5 a.m. He was not a believer. He was angry about it. He was saying, this is stupid. It's got nothing to do with sport. But over the whole tournament, their humility, it kind of spoke to him. And on top of being shot at, it's like God touched him and he got radically born again. Well, the end result was he became part of our church for quite a number of years. And so suddenly now, he's coming over here. And I'll tell you right now that his dream threatened some people. His dream, in actual fact, he, some people wrote it off and said he has absolutely no chance, including many on ESPN who just said he has no chance. Second time he ever touched a football, and the first time he ever touched a football in a real game or a preseason game was this year. And in his first, second touch as a running back, he ran 53 yards. So I guess people started to take notice. And then people said he has no chance of ever making the team. Uh, one, one guy on SP, ESPN said he, he plays like a soccer player. This is not soccer, it's football. But then he went and he made the first cut and he made the second cut. And ultimately, he made the final team for the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers. And <laughs> yeah, now I've got some friends. But then I just lost other friends. And so Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the auditorium to do business with people, apparently as they are inspired and take up the challenge of dreaming dreams. He's a part of the team. He's just finding his way and finding his feet. But I can tell you right now, he had an outrageous dream. It looked impossible. People didn't like it. I don't know where your dream lies. Maybe. Was anyone brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins as a result of this so-called dream? You are an athlete. Maybe it's in some form of profession. Maybe it's helping people on a grand scale. Maybe for some here it is being a pastor, a leader, having a ministry. 
Maybe it's something so different that I'm not even thinking about it. All I would say is hold on to your dream. Don't allow life itself to knock it out of you. I believe in dreamers. I encourage young people to dream. I encourage you to see vision and not be afraid to see vision. And if it doesn't look too big for you, if it doesn't look impossible enough, then I say, dream bigger dreams. Dream bigger dreams. Dream bigger dreams. Dream. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Bible doesn't teach this anywhere, especially in the story of Joseph. Your dreams. God's got a purpose for you. You're not on earth by chance. You're not an accident. You're here for the purpose of God. And Mo, uh, Joseph, he dreamed such a dream that it made people hate him. But I got to tell you, God made his dream come true. And I am testimony myself that God can cause dreams to come true. So, Father, again, I pray for everyone. Okay, done. Yeah, sorry, Brian, not going to let you pray for us because I don't even think you pray to the same God I pray to. So there you go, a proper understanding of the story of Joseph and how it points us to Christ and type in shadow, and then Brian Houston and what I would just consider to be complete, utter nonsense, narcissistic nonsense at that. I hope this was helpful. What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>